Clean and protect your firearms with Riptide Armory. Riptide Armory's products are military and professionally formulated and approved, featuring a groundbreaking graphene-infused ceramic coating that is safe for all surfaces, providing unmatched protection for any firearm. Discover a new standard in gun maintenance. Order your advanced cleaning kits today at RiptideArmory.com. Riptide Armory. Relentless performance for your firearms. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Auto Parts. What's the best way to fish like a local? What if you could book a trip with an experienced local guide with the click of a button? Now you can with Fishing Booker. Now anyone can access enjoyable fishing experiences anywhere. Take the legwork out of setting up that trip and explore more than 30,000 fishing experiences at your fingertips. Just go to fishingbooker.com to get started and book your trip with a local guide. That's fishingbooker.com. Fishing Booker. Fish like a local. We're back. Better than ever. Uh, right, Phil? Yes. We're back. We're better than ever. It's THC 2020. Thanks for sitting through the best ofs. We appreciate it. Had two great years of podcast. We're going to have a third, even greater year in 2020, so we're excited about that. We're going to get rolling. we got a lot of things we want to talk about this year, a lot of things to cover. We've been back here at the Mediator offices planning 2020, planning some cool trips, segments, uh, cool interview guests, trying to get the best of the best. We got a lot of great through lines and topics we're going to try to cover this year. We're going to try to include a lot of controversies, a lot of interesting people. Keep doing what we've been doing in the past. So keep this as our promise. Phil, really, it's Phil's promise to make this the best year ever. That's true. That was my idea. I pitched it to you. I said, "Hey Ben, what do you think about making 2020 the best year of THC?" <laughs> I was like. <laughs> Absolutely not. I am tired. I took some convincing, but yeah, I think you came around. I came around. So we're gonna we're gonna make it the best year ever. We're we're dedicated to make this podcast better. Come along for the ride with us in 2020. But for now, this episode, we're talking about uh, Phil's a backstabber. There's a poem involved. We have uh, two teenagers out of Pennsylvania who are being charged with animal cruelty over a video of them abusing a deer that they had shot. We're going to talk about that. We're going to get into that. Uh, pretty crazy turn of events. And then we're going to talk to Dr. James Tantillo from Cornell, a f- pretty famous ethicist. He's done a lot of thinking on hunting and hunting ethics and philosophies and why hunting makes us better people. So stick around to hear that as well. It's 2020. We're getting going. Episode 97. Enjoy. I guess I grew up on an older road A pedal to the metal Always did what I told Until I found out that my brand new clothes Came second hand from the rich kids next door And I grew up fast I guess I grew up mean There's a thousand things inside my head I wish I ain't seen 
now I just wander through a real bad dream Or feeling like I'm coming apart at the seams But thank you, Jack Daniels oh, no, Hey, everybody, welcome to episode 97 of The Hunting Collective It's 2020 and we're back and better than ever We're on a month hiatus, Joe A month we were gone A month, wow Yeah, did you miss us? Well, you, I was here, though Yeah, I didn't miss you You didn't miss me Because I saw you Yeah, you saw me Everybody but, else missed you yeah, I hope you guys met. We were still coming at you every week, but it was best ofs. And we know uh, best ofs aren't uh, all that exciting to some people. Other people, maybe they are. But we're back. I think we're better than ever. Phil, you think we're better than ever? I think uh, it's yet to be seen. I think we'll find out. We'll find out. <laughs> we <laughs> intend to be better than ever. Sure. And I think that's it's the thought that counts. But we're going to spoil you, spoil you listeners with gifts in 2020. That's the way we're going to bribe you into leaving us good reviews and doing doing good things for the podcast, so so don't worry. But we, we're joined by Anthony Licata. Hey, Ben. Fresh back from Mexico. Yeah. How was? How was? Oh, it was terrific, man. We were um, down in Sonora, Mexico, just um, south of Arizona, hunting coos deer. <clears throat> it is a spectacular country. Yeah. Uh, really fun hunting. You've done it. Um, the deer are so cool. It's challenging, interesting, and... Um, Man, it's just beautiful. You know, you're hunting on these, uh, hunting on this massive cattle ranch, and it's uh, it's a little bit like going back in time. You know, you're yeah. staying in an old stone building. This ranch is off the grid. It is worked by traditional uh, cowboys, vaqueros, right? Vaqueros, yeah. Um, on horseback. Who do not want their pictures taken. <clears throat> no. I found out last year. I'm like, I'll take your picture. That'd be cool. It'd be great for the gram. Nope. No, no they're not like, into the gram. He just pointed to his gun. He's <laughs> yeah. like, I'm just going to keep riding. You're not going to do anything. But you'll be out there hunting, and, and then you run across a you know, vaquero on a horseback with a couple of dogs and you know, old lever action rifle and a scabbard, and you know he's just making his loop and... Living out there, it's a, it's a real special place. It's it's a wonderful thing, especially those of you that are, you know, hunt locally only. When you can travel to hunt like that, you get immersed in the culture of the place and kind of what you, you transport your style of hunting to a place in a different, you know. And like you said, it's kind of like a different time down there. Uh, yeah, it really is. Crossing the border is always interesting. Yes. And so I'm glad you guys got to go. I, if anybody needs an update, not yet, uh, I'm going to say not yet a father, because I'm already a father. I'm not yet a double father. Two-time father. Uh, not yet ben a two-time father. Two-time father. Two-time father. <laughs> One-time father as of right now. I, I think you could technically call me a two-time father. We've had, for those who have been asking, a lot of people have reached out via the Instagrams and, and even a couple emails as to how everything's going. I want to say it didn't go. it's not going great to this point, but everybody is is relatively happy and healthy, and we're looking to have the baby anytime now. So... Uh, just a quick update. You don't want to hear my sob story about what we've been doing. But while uh, Anthony and team and Cal and Steve were all down in Mexico, I was hanging out in the hospital. Um, and so just quick thanks to the folks in the Bozeman Hospital. I, like Nurses and doctors are legit heroes. We all know this? Yeah. yeah. We don't uh, talk about that enough. They do good work. We don't talk about that enough. We talk about sports and musicians. My wife wanted to watch last night the SAG Awards and I just felt ill watching <laughs> these people I don't even know what that is Screen Actors Guild oh just watching these people that really just played around for a living pretend to be important and I just after spending days with real important people who whose lives uh, a lot of people depend on 
for yeah. them to save them. For me, we're, we're in there asking them questions. How do we do this? What do we do to have this child safely and all these things? It, it's amazing. So thanks to those folks. And my God, if you see one, thank a military member if you see him. But if you th- see a nurse or a doctor, thank them too. Because my God, they, they do some of the most important work on this earth, I would say. So we're going to get into the show. And we're going to keep doing this no matter what happens here at the Hunting Collective. Um, Phil, have you ever been to New Zealand? I have not. Would no. You like to, would you like to go? Uh, I'd love to. I, I know that there are um, dragons <laughs> and elves. <laughs> what? And hobbits. What? Are there not? There's not. Oh. Well, I've been misled. <laughs> what do you mean? <laughs> Uh, <laughs> if I took you to New Zealand, you'd want to go like tour the Hobbit Town or whatever. Oh, for sure. Yep. Bullshit. What What else is there to do? Can you? How is, did this guy even get me? in here? <laughs> what? You would want to go to Hobbiton. It, in all honesty, it looks gorgeous, and I have a I have a feeling you have more to say on the topic. It's a big big deal. Uh, First Light, you guys all know First Light. Um, they're going to send somebody out there in listener land or elsewhere to New Zealand. Uh, and they're going to send them there with me. I'm just going to go, Joe. I'm just going to go. Just going to go and watch? Probably. Nobody's telling me if I'm going to get to do what I'm going to get to do. But I'm definitely going to go, watch a lot of movies on the plane, and then walk behind whoever wins. Are you going to watch Lord of the Rings on the way there? I'll probably do that. So you can study the landscape? Yeah, because that's, yep, so I'll know. It's yeah. like scouting. Yep. <laughs> uh, watching that. <laughs> Purest form of e-scouting there is. Yep. So that's what's happening. You can win a nine-day, eight-night. That's a long time. That's a good hunt. That's yeah, a good hunt. That's awesome. People don't win hunts for that long. No. So I'm a little nervous about who might go with me. Uh, so they're the hunter. I just assumed you were the hunter, and they were just your uh, guiding gun bear. But no. Yeah. No, if I was making the call, <laughs> you'd be like, one, one eight-night guided trip where you walk behind Ben O'Brien when he shoots whatever he wants. <laughs> you have to carry his gun most of the time. You carry his gun. Yeah. Uh, late night foot massages, <laughs> and you'll hang his clothes up when he gets sweaty. But no, in all honesty, you're going to get a Weatherby rifle package. You're going to get some stuff from Benchmade Knives, and you're going to get kitted out in first light. And we're going to fly across the world to the southern hemisphere, and we're going to go to the South Island, New Zealand. We're going to hunt Himalayan tar, which I've done a few times. It is beautiful. Uh, have you ever been there? Anthony? I have. <clears throat> I've had been to New Zealand and hunted tar. <gasps> um, oh the, my god! The mountains are spectacular, and those best. animals are incredible. That's the best. And they're delicious. Don't yes. let their smell, look, their general presence fool you. They're delicious. Yeah, they're a big hairy goat. Yep, kind of deal, and um, they are delicious. God, do they smell? But they're delicious, uh, and so you're gonna get all of that. And we're going to do it sometime in May. You have until February 29th of this year to enter. And if you go over to firstlight.com, it's firstlight.com slash tar hunts sweepstakes. Maybe you ought to spell tar. Is it this May? This coming May. Wow, that's fast. That's fast. That's really fast. You're going to win, and then all of a sudden you're just going to be there with me in a tent. Can, Can I win that? Yeah, I'd like you're to not. A, I'm adding this to the to the legal stipulations. You can't like peas. If you like peas, you can't go. I don't want to be around these type of people. Uh, you know what I'm saying, Phil? I don't. Peas are just just fantastic. And I'd like whoever whoever goes to start growing a mustache <laughs> right away. So I'll, we'll put that in the legal mm-hmm. addendum at the end when you win. Either way, you can do that if you go to firstlight.com/tar. 
shit. T A H R. There's no shit in the thing. T A H R H U N T sweepstakes. Tar hunt sweepstakes. Don't include shit. If you type that in there, you're not going to get anywhere. Uh, but it's going to be fun. I'm, I'm excited. I'm honored that, that First Light would want to include me in something like this. I don't see a whole lot of giveaways out there in the space like this one ever. Yeah, that is that is Joe was saying that's a fast turnaround. It's a fast Normally a really you fast put in turnaround. for like a sweepstakes, you wait a year and then you might get a phone call and then you have to wait another 6 months. But yeah, man. no, you you've got to put in your uh, your time off at work right now. Yeah. Even before you win, yep, visualize your success. Take that week this. off <laughs> right now. Go to your boss and be like, I've taken this week off. I've preemptively won a hunt with Ben O'Brien. <laughs> confidence right there. It's confidence. Yeah. THC. And so we're going to do a lot. There it is. is. We're yes. back. We're back. <laughs> uh, I'm still looking for that. Some listener to send me a compilation of all the email dings from my computer <laughs> on every show. There's one of them. And so uh, you might, I might be able to just give you a spot on the New Zealand hunt if you can put that compilation <laughs> together. Again, not legal. Uh, all... All kidding aside, please don't do that. Um, that's it, man. I'm excited. We're going to go. Keep checking back for more details, but first you have to enter. We're going to do a lot of cool stuff on the podcast around this hunt with the winner. So uh, hopefully you are well-spoken and you love hunting. That's really that all that matters, and we're going to go have a good time with First Light. So thanks to First Light. We're going to go. Now, Phil, we got to talk. Okay, I'm, uh, this doesn't sound good. Yeah, it's a little bit of a come to Jesus we're going to keep Anthony and Joe in the room as mediators. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say as witnesses? What's happening? Probably here? witnesses. Because <laughs> I might, it might get violent. <laughs> I just watched The Irishman last night. Oh, you did? And uh, this is a worrisome introduction <laughs> to a conversation. Yeah, it is for sure. Uh, I got, we got an email. It's entitled, Phil is a backstabber. Now, we, and we've taken, you know, some time off from actually recording each week. You got the best of shows. We, we enjoyed it. Take some time off. I've been, been very busy with my family. And it seems like uh, Phil, his allegiance is uh, slipping a little bit. I think we've had something uh, Phil, like tell this, the truth. Like this conversation in the past. Yeah. Um, yeah. Would you like to expand on, on this thought? What's, what's happening? There was a, a guy wrote in. Uh, a guy. And his name is Mike. Hartman. He wrote in, and his, the email is Phil is a backstabber. Uh, he said, first I would like to point out that there has been, there's been an advertiser, Mr. Nella, energy pouches, and you're included on that. That's true. And recently you were on a full podcast with the Meat Eater team, Mike also points out. Uh, yeah, that's true. Uh-huh. I'm not going to lie. This is bad. This looks bad. It looks bad. Yeah. And in recent recent podcast, you pledge your allegiance to this show. <laughs> Don't give me a fucking awkward, just awkward laugh. I've been off rearing a child. <laughs> yeah, it's something Trying like to. that. <laughs> Attempting to. Here you are. He wrote a uh, poem for you. Okay. Mike did. I'm going to read it. Mm-hmm. You ready? Go ahead. The room is filled with a stench from Phil's countless lies. We heard him tell Mr. O'Brien he would be faithful to his side. First on THC, Phil the engineer did we applause, even though Ben made fun of his stash and Mango the dog. 
We've greatly appreciated his being on THC, but the faithfulness of Phil has, was never meant to be. Behind you, Mr. O'Brien, we will all stand should you aspire to turn Phil the engineer and inform him that he's fired. Or request that he make a symbol to show that he is true, to stand behind THC, our love could be renewed. So I think that's the end. This is so dumb. <laughs> <laughs> You're not a poet, I guess, Phil. I mean, no, listen, I'm impressed and I uh, I'm honestly flattered even though it's mostly uh, – It's called Poem de Phil. Was what he titled it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> thanks, Mike, for writing in and being concerned because I've been off doing really important things, and Phil's been dabbling around with uh, other folks. Uh, what if I were to tell you, Ben, that I also work on um, Ryan Callahan's podcast? Don't care. I also <laughs> work on <laughs> Remy Warren's podcast. I'm not even looking at you, Phil. You're not. Nope. I'm no. looking away. Uh, Ben, I uh, quiet, Phil. <laughs> I'm still, I'd like to think that I'm still, you're my number one boy. Boy, that didn't help. No. Nope. Okay. <laughs> that hurt. Anyway, we're going to move on. He just on. put a number on you, Ben. <laughs> we're going to move on. He called me, called me a boy or something. Um, we're going to move on. Phil, just just know that we're watching you. Mike Hartman is watching you. He's writing poems. I imagine he wrote that in his basement or something. Mike, Mike, I, I, I said it was dumb, but honestly, that's that's it's that's great. Good. And you're not wrong. It's pretty good. <laughs> pretty good. Moving on to more egregious pen, more egregious things out there in the hunting world. But we're watching you, Phil. Just know that. Um, I should say we have Cornell Cornell ethicist Dr. James Tantillo coming on soon. We're so we talk about a lot of things. We talk about hunting ethics, tragic knowledge within hunting, and a lot of really. Some some topics were rehashing, but a, a, a really good conversation around the philosophies, the, the deeper philosophies of hunting with with Doctor Tantillo. So stick around for that. Uh, but before we get to that, Joe Farinato is here to give us a bit of a news report. We're not going to call it a news report because we're going to do some more research after this. But there was a video that came out not too long ago. When did it come out, Joe? Uh, November thirtieth. November thirtieth. Yep. This video came out of two young men in Pennsylvania. Yep. Uh, I think you could accurately describe it as abusing a deer. One of them had shot and wounded. They filmed it, posted it on social media. Snapchat. Snapchat, to be exact. Um, give us a, any other details you think are pertinent, Joe. Um, so they videoed themselves like laughing hysterically while, while kicking this deer. Um, multiple times, and in the full video that originally was posted, there was some more egregious acts, like them really stepping on its throat and like pulling it by the antlers and stuff like that. And uh, it, it was a really brutal video to watch. Something that, as hunters and you know people that care about wild animals and wild places and stuff, it was just really disturbing. Didn't enjoy it. Uh, hit home. But uh, they have now been charged yep. with multiple crimes apiece, four felony charges against each of them. Um, yeah. Yeah. Aggravated cruelty to animals, two counts for each of them, and then aggravated cruelty to animal uh, conspiracy. So in mm. Pennsylvania. Yeah. One of them was 18, one was 17. Yep. So the 17-year-old is technically a juvenile, 18-year-old being... Uh, considered an adult in legal circumstances. And so this has become, there's a lot of things to go around this, but I think maybe we should watch the video. I will say that since this video came out, I've gotten dozens, uh, if not 
a hundred or so messages from people saying that we need to discuss this or or go on about it. So this is a serious thing. Well, hundreds um, of thousands of people have watched it too, and yeah. I mean, there's petitions on the internet, and it's it's a very serious thing. Part of this, I think, goes to there's there's a lot of threats. Social media being a big one. Um, these two young men being exactly that, being young men, um, and then just internet outrage and how that influences things in this case. But let's let's quickly just watch the video and we can comment on it. Um, for those who haven't uh, seen it, I'm not going to hand, hand a link out. You can go find it somewhere. But we'll watch it really quick because we just need to kind of go through this and, and and look at what's happening. So this... They blurred it out in this video, but this kid, this deer is wounded. Looks like it's maybe he spined it, yeah. paralyzed it. The kid filming is giggling while his friend takes two or three steps and punts this deer in the head. They're cussing. So now he's trying to grab. This deer is fully alive, clearly paralyzed. They're trying to grab his horn. They already broke one off. This is... It's clearly animal abuse. It's As a hunter, the opposite of everything you'd want to see. It's pretty gross and appalling. Um, I don't know. Any other comments? Yeah. It's, it's gross and appalling, and it is hard to watch. Um, and it's just... Um, you know, if you've hunted um, long enough, there's there's a good chance that you've come up on a deer that you've shot that has that is not dead, and it's hard to imagine. You know, that's happened to me, and you know the in the the feeling that I feel immediately is like kind of revulsion, and and like you're a little sick about it, and you're you're like you're worried. And you feel bad, and my first thought is, you know, how do I kill this deer as as quickly as possible right now? And it's just hard to imagine um, someone having the opposite reaction, that it's an opportunity to sort of abuse and and cause more pain um, to an animal. It's it's, – I don't understand it other than, you know, clearly there's something wrong (laughs) with these two individuals. Um, you know, it's, it's very hard to watch. Yeah. If you're old enough, in this case, age being, being a big thing that I think about, like, what was I doing when I was that age? I was following the examples of the folks that were taking me hunting. And so these guys are old enough to grab a rifle and get a license and go hunting. They're old enough to treat wildlife with respect that it deserves. This is just a beyond. It's just beyond. And the the hubris to post it online, you just... I think that's one of the the big issues there, too, because everybody goes to Snapchat because it disappears after, you know, five or ten seconds. Yeah. And it has that facade, that, you know, sense of safety posting stuff that you don't want people to see for long periods of time. But, you know, once you put something on the internet, it's always going to be there. You know, there's the the tired tropes of, like, anti-hunters will see this. This isn't... To me, this isn't that. This is... What is wrong with these two kids? I mean, they're kids. One of them's eighteen, but it's still that's still young. And and how do yeah. they get to to this point? I'm not. I don't know them. I can't prejudge them in any way. Um, my assumption is 
they're feeling real bad at this point, but in the moment to see that deer and for your mind to go to, I'm going to get my phone out and film someone. I mean, I, I never use Snapchat. I don't know how you post to it. I don't know if you film live like you do Instagram or whether they filmed it and then later posted it. That I don't know. Well, I'm not sure about that. But in the moment, for you to see a suffering, be doesn't even need to be an animal, any being suffering at your hand and to to increase that suffering for a laugh, it's pretty sick. It's very sick. Pretty sick. Um, I don't think there's any more to say about that. Anybody that sees that video which these, these folks voluntarily put out on the internet that shows another kind of warped way of seeing their mm-hmm. own actions. Anybody that sees it is, is sickened by it. Any hunter that sees it, I think, probably is doubly sickened by it because you know the responsibility you have in that moment. Mm-hmm. And this is, in fact, the opposite of, of what your responsibility is to that animal. Um, is pissed off. Like, that pisses me off. Uh, it pisses me off a lot. Um, but, Joe, you, have the, you found a change.org petition. Yep. And what's it say? So it was written by a guy, Mike Wolf. Uh, he opens it up with saying, recently two monsters from Brookville, Pennsylvania, um, which I think is a very strong word to use right in that opening line. Like he's he's getting it out there that people well, he, need he to says, associate these two kids as monsters. Criminal charges. The title of the change.org petition is criminal charges for violent monsters who tortured innocent wildlife. Yeah. So he, I mean, in my mind, the, the, when I'm watching this video, I'm thinking these, these are little monsters. Like I do, I would think that just by like the visceral reaction watching the video. Continue, Joe. <laughs> no, I, I totally agree with you there. And then, you know, he goes on to say they committed sickening acts, which I totally completely agree with, and is calling for people uh, to sign his petition saying charges need to be filed with maximum sentencing. Um, charges need to be pressed, posting in the case gets to, their, their post get deleted. He just, yeah, he ends up with saying in all caps, charges need to be filed with maximum sentencing. Yep. And then this petition has been signed by 771,000 people. Good Lord. Wow. <laughs> I mean, yeah, like that's a, that's a big thing. That is a lot of people seeing this yeah. petition and I mean, I don't know if you guys saw on social media on your own channels and everything when this first came out, just the outrage. I mean, on my personal channels, I had friends um, for sure posting petitions saying we need to throw the book at these kids, just get them out of here. And uh, yes, um, it's, it's disturbing. It's disturbing. There, there has to be some. There has to be some separation between how outrageous this video is and how we treat these. These uh, gentlemen, in in a ju- in a judicial manner, there there has to be some some way. But you often have um, public officials who are reading this, who are feeling the backlash, who are getting the emails. I know in this case, Joe, you were telling me that that was happening. Um, yep. The local officials that were set to prosecute these two kids were were feeling the pressure, and they were getting a lot of emails as to why haven't you done something sooner? Why isn't the investigation more swift? Why haven't these uh, from some of my men. preliminary research, too, a lot of people have been thinking, you know, in that court of public opinion, people have been thinking that it's been because the older kid, the 18-year-old, is the stepson of the Brooksville sheriff. Yeah. So people thought there was, you know, some yeah special yeah. treatment going on or something like that, which 
it was assured by the police department that that wasn't happening. And then the game commission is the one investigating, not the yeah. sheriff's department. It so. just takes longer for some of this stuff to happen than people realize. From yeah. And it seems like they did a very thorough investigation before they, mm-hmm. they came forward with charges. Yeah. And when the charges that you said there in the beginning, Joe, face a maximum penalty of 37 years in prison. Is that correct? Am I right about that? Uh, right about. So for, for Alexander, uh, he's the 18-year-old. So he has four felony charges against him, plus eight more, seven more charges, uh, misdemeanors, and uh, things like that, that would in total, if he got max penalties on all of them and was found guilty on all of the charges, uh, it could lead to 37 years in prison. What do you think about that, Anthony? Well, uh, what I think, I'm not punning here, but what I think is that's not for me to say, right? Yeah. That's um, Those laws were written in a certain way for the maximum penalties, and um, that's the way our legal system works, where laws are passed with sentencing guidelines, and then the trial happens, and there's a whole process for a judge to... Um, determine what is the best sentence. And so um, what I think is, you know, I understand people are angry and and angered me and you think, oh my God, these kids are horrible. Throw the book at them. I get that. Um, But I don't know the full story. I don't know um, any other circumstances. And I, you know, I I trust that that's what the, um, the trial and the sentencing process and the judge, that's what their job is. They are the experts on that, not me. Yeah, and this all this goes uh, weirdly connects to President Donald Trump. Uh, that He signed, back in November, signed a federal animal cruelty bill called the Preventing Animal Cruelty and Torture Act. Five days before this happened, it was signed into law. <laughs> this is all, I mean, this goes back to this, one of these two kids being a stepson of a law enforcement official. Then you have this five days before it happened. Uh, a bi- this is a bipartisan bill. And this is what it says. This expands a 2010 law signed by President Barack Obama that banned videos that show animals being crushed, burned, drowned, suffocated, impaled, or subjected to other forms of torture. Now intentional acts of cruelty shown in videos are also felony offenses. And that's obviously a reaction to things like this. It's obviously a reaction to social media, to the uprise, and yeah. people filming everything they do. And now you have a case in the hunting space that connects directly to this legislation. It was bipartisan legislation for once in our damn lives. Um, and I absolutely agree with with the way this is stated in the bill and the way it was passed into law. And now you have uh, these two kids. They're going to face it. They're yeah. going to face the, the wrath of, of this legislation and of everything that they did in that video. Um, so we're going to do some more research on this. We're going to continue to look into it. I think there's just so many. Some of these stories just have so many threads and entanglements, not only in our culture, but in how we treat criminals. And in this case, it's just a really interesting story. So hopefully Joe and I will break off at some point and, and get an article on media.com to kind of go through the details of this and get everything exactly right, talk to the in- individuals involved and kind of lay this out in a way that makes sense. Because, again, the thing that worries me is that the court of public opinion, when there's a video that's this damning, becomes ravenous, as we see with this petition. It's very easy. Very. It's uh, very easy. Like signing a petition 
sounds like a serious thing, but all you have to do is put your basic information into fields on the internet. And you have, quote unquote, signed a petition on change.org to punish these kids. Um, you know, that, that may or may not weigh on the actual decision when it comes down as to what punishment they get. But um, that's just another example of what, what I feel is just a reckless court of public opinion, especially when there's something this gross out there in terms of the video. But the legislation backs it up. So I think it's just a story that we're going to continue continue to look at. So please write us at THC at TheMeatEater.com. Let us know what you think. Let us know what you'd like to know about this that you don't already know because there's a lot of details we left out here. There's a lot of little idiosyncrasies and things. Um, and good journalism, good reporting would bear out that we need to go and get that stuff and, mm-hmm. and present it because I think this is an important story, not only for for these two gentlemen and what they did, but also for social media and for what we post and how we post for our images hunters, um, how we penalize and how we charge people that do things like this. Um, there's a lot that goes into it. And it's I, I, I would take it very seriously. I don't think there's any joking joking in me on this subject. Um, so write in, let us know what you think. We're going to break off and do some research and come back with even more information on this uh, situation out of PA. Phil, you want to take us home? What do you think? Uh, I mean, I know one of them is 17, but even like everyone around this table kept referring to them as kids. I'm sorry, man. You're old enough to know. One of them is not a kid legally. I was moved out of my house when I was 17. Oh, shit, Phil. We're peeling the onion back. No I'm just, I'm, <laughs> no, no wonder you're a rebel, I'm bro. just saying, but not only are these, are these I'm going to say that they're not children, but they are young enough to have grown up in this social media landscape, like Snapchat and Instagram and Facebook. Uh, the fact that they committed the abuse and then thought that it was a good idea to put it on the internet because they're like their small circle of friends would think it was funny or something, I guess. Uh, and then it seems like, like there's kind of what I get is that you seem upset about this change.org petition. That's like, Oh, it's like they were coming at these kids with, with pitchforks and torches, but yes, I think they invited that on themselves. A change.org petition is, is nothing. It, it's, it's only a way to, to call attention to something. Yeah. Uh, and they wanted attention called to what they did, and now they're getting it. And I don't think there's any, there's anything wrong with that. Yeah. You know, part of the thing um, when I look at this, I just I think 771,000 people just denotes the power of the digital age. Like people are going to see yeah. this, man. If you post something online, and we've seen this, I don't know how many times we talk about it on this podcast or others, we have seen this time and time and time again. Criminals posting illegal things on the internet and getting caught. Like, it is ridiculous. There's a lot of dumb people in the world. Just dumb. <laughs> and, and I don't, it's, it's alarming to me. The language and the vitriol here is alarming to me, but you're not wrong, Phil. Like, you bring that on yourself when you do stupid things. Um, you live with the consequences. And, and I don't know if this, I don't know these two kids, gentlemen, Whatever we're gonna call them, but not gentlemen. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like I don't know these people, but I could tell you that to to think that you can do this and post it for others mm-hmm. to see, the disconnect with reality that is present there. That I'm gonna post this for other people to see is is unbelievable. Yeah. Unbelievable that that they they wouldn't stop in the moment and say like posting this on the internet 
even if it goes away in, in whatever it is, 24 hours or whatever the Snapchat setup is, the wrong thing to do. Just like, to do it. I just can't even understand it. the yeah, instinct I, I, to do it. Can't can't either. I, I, it, it's sick to to yeah. think that. I, that I just know because, like, you know, the, the argument being like, oh, well, we all did dumb things, like, dumb things when we were that young. Uh, m- yeah. Not that dumb. Well, that's like, that's a line. There's dumb and then there's evil. Yeah. I, and if I got, if I saw someone posted a picture on Facebook of me in a dorm room and there was like a beer can in the background, I would go to that person and be like, hey, take that picture down, please. <laughs> and like, so these guys like tortured an animal and had no problem like sharing it with the it, world. It, yeah. It's just, it's just awful. I don't know the, the first time I've ever been presented with like, what do they deserve? It's it's clear that most people that watch this, me included, think they deserve a harsh punishment. I don't know. I just don't know. <laughs> I don't. I can't say that 30 years in jail will fix it. I just don't. I don't know, but they do deserve to be punished. So we'll go back. We're going to look at this. We're going to um, talk to as many people as we can that were involved, and we're going to find out uh, as much as we can about it and try to present this this case to everyone. Um, as it lays out, because there's a lot that we don't know, um, which is the case with a lot of this stuff. There's a lot that we just do not know. But you know, you know how I learned uh, how to what not to post on the internet when I got my first job out of college in the hunting industry. Uh, the lady called to the HR lady called to tell me I got the job. She said, "Hey, you got the job. Congratulations! I'm all excited." She said, "But your MySpace page." Has a few pictures you might want to take down. <laughs> oh, MySpace. Yeah, she was like, "Yeah, see, Joe doesn't just, even know what MySpace is." Ben's <laughs> he, an he old just, millennial. He just dated yourself. He's an old millennial. Who was in your yeah. top eight, Ben? Oh, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> there, there was, MySpace <laughs> friends, top eight. <laughs> there was a time when you couldn't change it, but then it was man when when you could make your own top eight. Dude. You you had to think about your circle Dude. of friends and who would get mad. <laughs> about <Yeah>. who? <laughs> I was just like eight chicks that I liked. I was single. Uh, that's, okay. how, that's how you flirted. Yeah, that's how I told yeah. them I was into it. Um, that's good. So then I went and I looked, and there's here, me doing beer bongs, me doing all this, uh-huh. you know, college-age type business. Right. And I just deleted the whole thing. I was like, this is not worth, none of this is worth the benefit that I might get from people thinking that I do beer bongs on the internet. Especially when you figure <laughs> out that your employers are looking at that, yes. considering to hire uh-huh. you. <laughs> yes, and this is like 12 years ago. Yeah. And so... Um, for any young folks out there or anyone at all, my God, everything you put online is a press release. Everything. So take that from this. And also, I, I don't think we could lecture people on not kicking wounded animals. This is, we don't need to do that. But um, a lot to learn from this, so we're going to continue to look at it. Lately, I've been telling you guys about Land.com, the site that can help you find that little patch of ground to call your own where you can do all the hunting, fishing, hanging out with family you want. Land can be a great investment. Getting your own piece of land is something that can both generate income over time and also generate a lot of memories for generations to come. It's an investment you get to use and enjoy and take care of while it works for you. And any good investor will tell you to start investing sooner than later. Well, they've got hundreds of thousands of rural listings from all across America. Land.com can help you find properties for hunting, fishing, a lake house, a hobby farm, or if you just want to start a rental business slash family compound as a way to better secure future generations. Land.com will also help connect you with the right agent that specializes in rural real estate. So enough dreaming about it. 
Land.com is the place to find and invest in your open space. Hey, here's a simple but very meaningful gift idea for your mom or grandparent who lives across the country. These are great, dude. These are really nice things to give to people. It's a digital picture frame from Aura. It's perfect for sharing pics of all the things they can't be there for, from family vacations to their grandkids' graduation. Let's say your mom comes out. You take a bunch of pictures of your mom with your kids or whatever. When she goes home, you can greet her at home with all those pictures you just took on the frame. And you can also keep her up to date by updating the frame from afar. It's all done online. It's a ton of fun. comes with unlimited storage and simple controls on the frame so you can upload as many photos as you want and mom can pick the perfect one. See why it was named the number one digital frame by Wirecutter, The Strategist, and Wired. Right now, you can save on the perfect gift that keeps on giving by visiting AuraFrames.com. That's A-U-R-A Frames.com. Make sure you use the promo code MEATEATER because for a limited time, you can get $20 off their best-selling frame with that code. The code being MEATEATER. AuraFrames.com, promo code MEATEATER. O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. At O'Reilly Auto Parts, they offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. Man, I'm always swinging through my uh, local O'Reilly Auto Parts to get stuff ranging from car parts and accessories to boat batteries. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. And if you're a do-it-yourselfer and need a specialty tool to finish the job, stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts and ask about their loaner tool program. Simply pay a refundable deposit and borrow the right tool, then get your deposit back when it's returned. That way you don't have to go buy some you know, super expensive thing that you need like once every five years. Just borrow it and get your refund back. Need your windshield wipers replaced, a brake light fixed, or quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit O'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater. Great. Now, James Tantillo from Cornell. It was a really great conversation. We got him on the phone a couple of weeks ago. We talked about a lot of things, including philosophies around hunting, a lot of his thoughts on ethics, and the modern hunter. So enjoy James Tantillo. I guess I grew up on an older road, a pedal to the metal. Jim, how are you? Good. Good. Well, thanks for joining us. We're, we don't do many phone interviews here on the Hunting Collective, but we, I wanted to make sure that we had this conversation and uh, we tried to hook up on the East Coast and it didn't work out, but thanks for taking the time to to chat today. My pleasure. Um, we want to break into a little bit of your background and, and what you've done in the academic circles and also uh, in, in the hunting space. But I guess first, we've talked a lot about ethics on this program. We talk a lot about why we do what we do and our motivations, intrinsic and extrinsic and the things that uh, we believe to be true. But could you explain to somebody uh, that may not understand ethics your version of ethics when it when it comes to hunting? Well, you know, I I mean, I'm a trained ethicist, and you know, I used to give a lot of talks, and I would make the point that when it comes to hunting ethics, there's only two or three genuine ethics 
issues, and that's hunting safely, and it's a general, you know, sort of a general respect for the law and uh, and the clean, quick kill. And then beyond that, a lot of it, you know, what 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 hunters tend to think of as hunting ethics is really more aesthetic questions about what type of technology to use and how many shells in the gun, whether to shoot on the wing or on the water, and and those kinds of questions. Yeah, and those are the questions I think that persist because they are, uh, at least for me, important to talk about and to, to compare perspectives and their cultural, the cultural significance of some of those ideas. Um, do you feel that that's what's going on and why, you know, most of those, you could call them debates, you could call them quandaries, whatever the issues within hunting, those things persist in the conversations. You feel like that's just because we're always trying to gain those perspectives. You know, I think that's part of it, but I also think there's basic human nature at work where, you know, many times we criticize what we don't understand or, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and, and a lot of, I get sort of irritated at hunters pointing the fingers at, at other hunters and saying, well, I don't like the way you hunt, so let's ban the way you hunt. And uh, there's this sort of, it's my way or the highway mentality. And I don't think that does anybody any good. Um you know, I, I, in an ideal world, I'd love to see hunters tolerate other hunters and other hunting behaviors, even if they personally don't approve of them or don't engage in them or, you know, don't care about them. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's something that continues in our in our community and just the, the lack of tolerance. We've talked about this recently where uh, you wonder if these differences were always there. They're just laid bare with modern technology and the internet and social media. Our differences were always there. We were always, you know, culturally different in in the South versus the West, for example. But now those things are being laid bare because we're all connected and we can see these practices. Uh, and that's kind of accelerated those differences. And, and there's larger social trends, you know, just, you know, independent of hunting, apart from hunting, you know, there's a, there's less toleration, I think, of, Differing viewpoints and perspectives, and and people are a lot more quick to judge, and there's a lot of self righteousness, and I, I think that's uh, that's true across the board. Yeah, for sure. Well, before we get much deeper into that, because we're gonna, <laughs> we'll probably go quite deep on that that line of thinking. Can you just talk about you know right now you're um, you're at Cornell, you've been, Cornell uh, University. You've been in the Department of Natural Resources since 2001. Can you kind of talk about why you landed where you did in academia, why ethics, um, why environmental history, environmental ethics, virtue ethics. There's a lot of things that you deal with that um, are interesting to me and, and would love to, to know why you landed where you did. Sure. That's <laughs> <laughs> so uh, probably a long answer to that question. Uh, I'll, I'll give you the, the SparkNotes version as much as possible, right? Uh, I, I started out in college as a history major at William & Mary in Virginia, uh, dropped out of college once, Took a leave of absence, found myself working at Walden Pond State Reservation in Concord, Mass., home of Emerson and Thoreau, and uh, transferred to Cornell as an undergraduate and dropped out yet again. I was on sort of the 10-year plan for my bachelor's degree. And then when I finally went back to school, I stayed there and got my master's and my Ph.D. at Cornell. And it just worked out that my Ph.D. advisor was retiring. I took over his teaching and... I've been there ever since. It was just sort of being in the right place at the right time. Yeah. And when, you know, we've had a, I've had a lot of good conversations around why um, folks that are biologists or that professionally, um, 
that use their professional time to go outside and study the out, outside world, the natural world. You know, when was the point in your life that that you that you knew that's what you wanted to do? Was but was there for you? Was there a point in your life where you knew that this that this path was it? Uh, was it before that you that you got into this, yeah. or or during yeah. your time? You know, some of them. Both my parents are teachers. My dad was a high school principal. My mom taught special ed. I think teaching is in the blood. Um, you know, it just it, 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 I, it, there's there's a, a sense in which it was meant to be. I think. Yeah, and and have you when you look at ethics and and your study of them, is that connected you more to the outdoors? Do you feel like you you understand a little bit more of the push and pull, what's going on out there, um, as you think of it? I don't, I don't know that ethics by itself, you know, deepens or heightens my appreciation for the natural world. Uh, you know, having studied Thoreau for so many years, you know, he was a sort of intellectual jack of all trades and was interested in natural history. He was interested in philosophy. He was interested in religion, history. And uh, I, I think I'm a little like that in terms of wanting to know everything about everything and you know, I, I know a very little about a lot of things and uh, much more of a generalist, I think, which kind of goes against the grain somewhat of academic work because a lot of academics know more and more about less and less. Just they're, they're hyper-specialized and I have very broad interests. Yeah, when, when was the first time you really started thinking about, um, you know, looking at, and I was telling you before we hit record that, I read a paper that you sent me from 2001 called Sport Hunting, Eudaimonia, and Tragic Wisdom. And as I read that, I, I know it's it's decades old by now, um, but as I read that, it, it struck me as a lot of the things that I've been thinking about and talking about uh, articulated better than I probably ever could. When did you? When was the first time you thought about that this was a need or this was something that you, you know, talking about sport hunting and, and the idea of it and the right. ethics of it. When was the first time you thought that it was either a need of the intellectual academic community or a need of the hunting community? When did that start to happen for you? Right. You know, when I went to graduate school at Cornell uh, in the early nineties, uh, I didn't intend to write my PhD on hunting. I was actually more interested in studying animal rights philosophy, believe it or not. And, the more I studied animal rights philosophy, the more and more convinced I, I was that it didn't hold up. And I didn't grow up hunting. So I came to hunting as a 30-year-old uh, adult. Uh, I got invited to go along to watch with my fellow graduate students. And it just blew all the stereotypes out of the water. These, you know, It wasn't a bunch of beer-guzzling highway signs shooting yahoos. Uh, the people that I met who hunted were very thoughtful and reflective about it. It, it, it meant a lot to them. And then when I tried it myself, uh, you know, it became a passion and it's been a passion ever since. So, you know, along with all that, I started reading some of the philosophical discussions about hunting and hunting ethics and the morality of hunting. And, and I realized there was a real need for, for, you know, a more nuanced kind of discussion uh, about the philosophy of hunting. Around the same time, Jim Swan had published his book, In Defense of Hunting. And while that's a very, very good book. Um, you know, at the time I thought, I don't, I don't know that that is adequate to the task. And, uh, so that's when I sort of decided, man, that's a good, good PhD topic. <laughs> yeah. It's a, it's been a topic that we've, we, I don't know if I have a PhD in it, but I've definitely run my mouth on it quite a lot. Oh, pretty good. I'm sure you're close to it anyway. <laughs> uh, I don't know if I'll ever get there, but that's why 
I, that's why I want to have this conversation. I'm interested, though, now that you say this, um, what, and I've been thinking about this a lot lately. I traveled to Berkeley, California over the summer and did some podcasts with some animal rights folks and a vegan philosopher named Robert C. Jones and talked about the animal rights philosophy and the ideologies of it um, in depth. And we just kind of, we there's a lot I think we agree on with vegans. Uh, I think the animal rights philosophies, as you just said, have lots of holes in them and can and can relatively easily be broken down philosophically once you start to go that direction. What what did you find as you looked at that early on? Well, you know, I used to argue that the hunters share much of the animal welfare perspective with uh, so-called animal rights activists. Many animal rights activists don't really believe in rights. They just believe in reducing animal suffering. And hunters are the same way. No hunter, I think, in good conscience goes out in the morning with the conscious intention of shooting a deer in the ass and having it crawl off in a ditch to die of gangrene six weeks later. You know, hunters want the ideal of the clean, quick kill. We don't always manage to to do that, but, you know, we, we generally try for that. You know, so if all goes well, you, you shoot an animal who doesn't know you're there and, and the animal just falls over and never knows what hit it. So, you know, I used to make a point of emphasizing that, that uh, hunters and, and people concerned with animal welfare share an awful lot in common. Yeah, for sure. Did you find that, where, where, did, that, where did they fall apart for you? Where did that line of thinking that just fall apart? Um, in, terms if, of the, in terms of the rights perspective? Yeah, in terms of the rights perspective. Yeah, I think there's a, the rights perspective is sort of, you know, ignorant about basics about animals in a lot of ways. And, you know, you can treat animals as little, you know, people trapped in animals' bodies, you know, um, and anthropomorphize animals, you know, the so-called Bambi syndrome. Um, but I think people who work with animals, people who, um, you know, have pets, people who are thoughtful, I think, know that there's a, uh, a genuine uh, line or a distinction between human and non-human animals. Um, so I, I think that's probably the first place where the animal rights sort of philosophy goes wrong. Yeah, I, I went to a place called the Dingo Den when I went to Berkeley, <laughs> and I I got to interview an animal rights activist, and he was he uh, he had been to he had been charged, I believe, and and some of the leaders of his organization were looking at federal charges for doing some uh, breaking into factory farms and and other things, and and they I found that they thought that was a badge of honor, that was something to be that they were fighting for for what right. they believe to be mass murder and they were they wanted a constitutional amendment saying you know killing an animal was akin to murder um and and spoke about that sometimes flippantly like that wasn't a huge thing for our our world that we could just move past killing animals much like we moved past slavery um, right and, and, and i was and, very uncomfortable with those comparisons well i you know i respect their motivation and i believe those folks are as well intended as anyone else i think that uh, here's where we get back to the ethics topic that, you know, what a hunter chooses to do in his or her own mind, you know, as regards killing an animal, you know, that's, that's sort of on the hunter and the hunter's conscience. And while I understand there's a role for society to play in trying to prevent animal cruelty, there's a big difference between animal cruelty and legitimate forms of animal use, hunting, uh, you know, farming, uh, raising beef cattle, 
uh, using sled dogs to pull sleds, uh, you know, or what have you. And uh, so, you know, I, and, and those activities generally don't harm other people. They don't harm the animal rights activists. So the, the animal rights activist starts at, at a disadvantage because it's very difficult for them to prove that, you know, the act of hunting out in the middle of the woods, miles and miles away from the nearest town, you know, has any impact on them at all. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I think that they often, and was my experience, choose the straw man. Or, yeah, their factory farming is their straw man. And that's what they, they go towards. And they'll, they'll play that up and, and use that as an example. And, and all I have to say is I disagree with that as well. <laughs> that's, right. It's a part of my activity of hunting is to disassociate from those that that those mass slaughters and not knowing where my meat comes from. So, as right. you said earlier, I think something that everyone that listens to this podcast know that that I believe wholly that vegans and animal rights folks we share we don't share a, a certain tact we don't share a lot, but um, we share this animal welfare idea um, right. pretty strongly. Right. So, um, all right. Well, I think moving moving into the ethics conversation, moving into the paper that you're in 2001, and I know a lot of these things have have stood the test of time, and and really can can be a big part of of our conversation around ethics and hunting. Do you do you want to quickly just explain um, what you determined to be the benefit of hunting, which you describe as the realistic awareness of death? I thought that to be a really you also talk about tragedy a lot, but I think that realistic right. awareness of death right. is a nice place to start. Sure. Uh, yeah, back up a little bit, you know, because in a lot of different places, you know, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, and still, you know, people would say, well, why do you have to kill an animal? Why not just use a camera uh, or use paintball? Um, you know, with the camera, if you want to really dress it up, you know, you can paint crosshairs on your camera lens and, and show that you had the kill shot right at the heart and, and, and let the animal live. And so how I got into the topic was wrestling with this question about why, why death? Why is the death necessary? And the classic sort of line comes from the Spanish philosopher Jose Ortega y Gasset in Meditations on Hunting, where he says, you know, we don't hunt to kill. We kill in order to have hunted. And, you know, I used to make this point a lot. You know, you get somebody who's farther along in their hunting career, they may trophy hunt, they may be holding out for antlers, they may go five or six seasons without killing a deer, but there's always that possibility that they, they might have killed had the right deer come along. And it doesn't mean they weren't hunting. And, you know, so to me, you know, I, I really did wrestle with this, you know, why do you need the death? And, and to me, there's a whole bundle of virtues that are sort of packaged in you know, with the act of taking a life, the conscious decision of taking the life, uh, and then dealing with the the fallout, the repercussions, the emotional sort of uh, part of it. So in that paper, you know, I talk a lot about this idea of the sort of tragic ambivalence that at the moment of the kill, the hunter is both glad for having done something the right way in a clean, quick kill, but at the same time, there's a there's an ambivalence, there's a sadness, there's a twinge of regret that you know, geez, I just took this animal's life and and there's a sadness and uh you know that that to me is is very very similar to the classic you know thousands years old uh, explanations of the reactions to tragedy and that's that's how the tragedy thing came about 
Yeah, and you bring up Arist- like Aristotle and his insights about tragedy. Right. Uh, and talk a lot about tragedy. And, and some of the virtues that you talk about, they're emotional and they're intellectual, right? There's crucial. Right. You say that, you know, hunting is especially well-suited for promoting a range of crucial intellectual and emotional virtues. Uh, right. Which, which I think is is a great way to kind of start that, lay out the groundwork for, for what these are. Um, you've right. already talked a little bit about them, but is there any other way you kind of explain exactly the, the intellectual and emotional virtues that we, we experience? Sure. One of the themes that I sort of have pushed for the 20 years since that paper was published, you know, this idea of tragic wisdom, the idea of wisdom coming out of the moment of the kill, you know, and we talked about the, you know, the, the person who eats meat but goes to the grocery store and sort of sees the the meat in the shrink wrapper and the cellophane and goes home and never gives it any thought. That's a very careless and thoughtless sort of mode of consuming meat. Whereas somebody who's actually been out there for three weeks and has waited to the final day of a deer or an elk season, (laughs) harvested an animal and, and, and dealt with, you know, the, the gutting and the butchering and, and, and all of it. Um, you know, there are insights both about animals and about food and about one's own character that you don't get just shopping at the grocery store. Um, you know, and, and, and there's an emotional de- depth to the experience that is also absent when one is simply, you know, you know eating, eating food from the grocery store or going to McDonald's for a hamburger for that matter. You know, yeah. there's a, a reason they call it fast food. Do you feel this is something I've been thinking about a lot? It's not really covered in your paper, but it's something I've been been wondering. I, and I know, as a modern in the modern sense, we as humans are we're given an option. You know, we have the option to kind of disregard where our food comes from, and really most of the things that we interact with, where how they're made or where they come from, or kind of the genesis right. of how they come to be, we have that option, right? We can we can check out of. Um, our consumer, how we consume things, only from food to products to whatever you might put in that bucket. And I think we have this option to to walk away from that and live, you know, live a modern life without understanding where our impacts, or we can do what is increasingly difficult, which is dive into um, right. these these difficult connections we have with every action we make and the impact that it has, not only right. on our environment, but on our society, the people around us, whatever. So I think hunting is just now a part of that conversation. How do we uh, stay connected as humans when every advance that we have, both in technology and and really every part of our society, every advance moves to disconnect us? Uh, right. And I think right. hunting just, just sits in that vacuum. Well, and there's a larger sort of do-it-yourself ethos that's at play. You know, nobody can be 100% self-sufficient. Thoreau himself proved that to his own satisfaction 150 years ago at Walden. Um, You know, I mean, you had back the times of Marcus Polo and Genghis Khan, you know, with the, the global spice trade. You know, people get stuff from other places. On the other hand, you know, generating at least a portion of one's own food again, leads to a kind of uh, intelligence or at least uh, awareness, you know, and I made the point in the paper that whether you're pulling the trigger on a deer or pulling carrots out of your own home garden, you know, you're, you're getting something, there's, there's value added there that, that you're getting. And, and it can lead, it doesn't automatically lead, but it can lead to a kind of deeper wisdom, a deeper knowledge about the way of the world. And death is part of the world. 
And that's where, you know, I make the point that some of the militant vegetarians who don't sort of see the, the cost in animal lives of a field uh, tilled for soybeans, for example. You know, there's thousands and thousands and thousands of voles and moles and mice and shrews and, you know, all of it that, that, that die for a field of soybeans to make tofu. And, you know, there's no, generally, no awareness. I'm not saying never, but uh, mostly not, not there. Yeah, it, it's hard. It's hard to enact anything in your life that that stands to to remove the fact that you're a consumption engine. That's what you do. You wake up in the right. morning and you consume the world around you in order to live. And so that disconnection is is the one thing that bothers me the most because I think it it just at the end of the day you must understand. You know, we say these things and and a lot of philosophers have said them better than I. But you know, life eats life and all this. We say that, but that really is the truth. Um, right, and it's how we come to terms with that, and how we decide to to move forward with that idea, and move forward with how we see the world. That's important, I think. Um, and I right. think you asked a question here that um, everyone should should has tried to answer. I think, uh, which is why does here's the, the why does hunting give us pleasure? You know, what is the thing about it that gives us pleasure? And how do you how would you explain that from this? Yeah, and already here's where you yep. Here's where you start getting into the deeper philosophical question about the essence of hunting and Ortega himself said hunting is is uh, not you know it's a type of diversion uh, and I think what he meant by that is it's a, as recreation it is fundamentally a form of play whether in your own mind you're reenacting the the days of the settlers or Davy Crockett or Daniel Boone or uh, there's a primitivism or an atavism about it um, that that is essentially a type of play acting. You know, you're, you're sort of playing at your role of being a predator within, you know, the broader ecological landscape. And the pleasure is in part uh, derived from the difficulty of the task itself, the challenge, the effort, you know. And, and, and here's where, again, the philosophy of play and games and sport uh, give us a very good understanding of how complex games can generate a, a depth of enthusiasm and, and appreciation. You know, the cliche that, you know, chess is better than checkers. It's because, you know, chess has many more dimensions in terms of strategy and in terms of moves and in terms of complexity and thinking five steps out or ten steps out. Um, and, and hunting has that kind of complexity. You need to understand animal behavior. You need to understand plant biology and geology and hydrology. You need to understand the weather. You need to understand wind. You know, you need to understand scent. If you're a bird hunter, you need to understand how your dog works. Um, you know, so all of that packaged together makes hunting a, a, an incredibly enriching and rewarding activity. Yeah, that's 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 unique. You can't really get that in other places. You know, you can go backpacking on the Appalachian Trail and, you know, you're sort of flying through the landscape trying to, you know, put in your 20 miles. And you're not really stopping to smell the roses or, or understand much else other than just pounding out miles. And, you know, hunting really immerses you in uh, a landscape and in a habitat and in an environment where, you know, you immersion's a good word for it. Yeah, and we, we always talk about it being a three-dimensional 
experience. Right. You know, there's so right. many things you add to it. If you were to to ride on a roller coaster, you get a thrill, you get excitement. Right. But it's two dimensional. It doesn't really have depth to it, um, and it doesn't really well, have the causation. And critics of hunting, you know, the roller coaster uh, comparison is really neat because. A lot of people who don't hunt think, oh, hunting is all about killing, and you're just killing for thrill or killing for fun. And, you know, what most non-hunters aren't aware of is the hours and hours and hours and hours that go by where, as Ortega says, you fight the beast's absence. And I think that's a wonderful line because, you know, and, and people who make the mistake of watching hunting shows on TV, all they see is the moment of the kill, and they don't see the 30 hours of sitting around with cold feet waiting for that to happen. And, uh, you know, so that's another thing that lends to the sort of almost character building part of it. You know, it teaches you humility. You, you have to learn patience, uh, I think to be a, to be a good hunter, uh, among other things. And I've always wondered, you know, why hunting stuck with me among other things, you know, my brother is never, never hunted and is not interested in it. My father kind of went away from it until I got interested in it, but did it as a child. His grandfather never really did it that much. So why, why did it stick in me? You know, I don't know what my young mind was thinking, but I know now as an adult, I'm sticking with it because of of what you're just saying. And I feel like it's, uh, it's transformative for me. And if I can somehow relate that to the people around me and others, uh, I think that's exactly what uh, our society and culture needs. Right. Now, you also say in the book, you say the ideals of tragic pleasure and tragic knowledge lead ultimately to my articulation development of the idea of tragic wisdom right. in hunting. I think we've already kind of talked around that idea, but can you talk a little bit about tragic wisdom? Well, you know, this, you had mentioned how the philosophers will say, you know, life eats other life. And Albert, Alfred North Whitehead was the one who said, life is robbery. And, and again, your point that life exists at the expense of other life. And I think that wisdom in part has to do with a recognition of one's own place in the cosmos and one's own, one, one's own place in the sort of the, the hierarchical chain of being, you know, kind of an old-fashioned notion. Um, but also an awareness of one's own, one, one's own mortality, you know, uh, that animal on the ground Someday that's going to be me. And, you know, it's often commented on how as hunters get older and more mature and as they age, uh, sometimes they occasionally get less and less willing to pull the trigger or more reluctant maybe is a better way to put it. And I find that with myself that as time has gone on, I'm, I'm somewhat ambivalent about pulling the trigger. You know, I'll, I'll watch 20 or 30 deer go by and, and there's a part of me that says, well, not today. You know, and, and it doesn't mean I'm not hunting. It just, uh, I don't know, as Mike Gaddis says, I think I quote him in that paper, you know, the life you take is not all that different from your own. Yeah, I, th- I think that I've run into that a lot, what you speak of. A lot of my, the hunters I admire, some of my idols within hunting and the outdoor space have, have softened in their older years. Uh, right. Have, have either lost, you know, the gumption of youth or have become more philosophical in the way that they approach death and therefore, you know, don't want to experience it as much as they might have earlier. Do you feel like well, that's, that, that's, that persists throughout I, hunting's history? Yeah, I think that's part of it. But I also think, you know, you, you have, your skills improve as a hunter and you get better at it. You know, I fell in love with grouse hunting. 
And part of why I fell in love with grouse hunting is because it's so damn difficult. To me, it's the most difficult kind of hunting to try and locate grouse, have them hold over a point, and then shoot them on the wing. And every single grouse I shoot, if and when it happens, that's a trophy. Um, and, you know, after, you know, 5, 10, 15 years go by, you get a certain amount of competence at it. And all of a sudden you realize it's not really about a body count. You know, it's it's not to just sort of show, hey, I can do this because you know you can do it. And that's where I think hunting turns into more of an art form. And you get more and more interested in the questions of technique and how you hunt. And so this is, you know, people say this with big game hunting all the time. You know, you start out with a rifle and once you get really good at that, maybe you switch over to archery and you use a compound bow. And then once you get pretty competent at that, maybe you switch over to a recurve or a stick bow. Um, and those additional refinements are a way of keeping your interest in the game, but making the game more interesting and more challenging, requiring more skill or different skills, uh, different levels of effort. Uh, and I think hunters who go through that kind of, uh, metamorphosis, I think continue to find that the hunt enthralls them and engages them in, in the absence of a body count. Yeah. And I, it's it's fun to, if you even think about those around you, you know, folks that you're hunting with, folks you've right. known for a long time, to, to watch other hunters go through those changes and to start, you know, I've watched and talked to a lot of through through our current efforts here at the Hunting Collective, a lot of adult onset hunters, as we call them. I think we got to come right. up with a different name probably for that, but something more, uh, something more appealing. But adult onset hunters, how quickly they move through the process that took me two decades to move through. How, you know, how quickly they move through just wanting to be safe and understand what's going on to, to wanting to study the natural world to then wanting to understand death and then being – jumping into the culinary aspects of it and it it starts to just enrich their life in ways that they would never have imagined and so it's good to kind of hear you articulate the philosophical uh bounds in which that all happens yeah i you know (laughs) that's been my experience anyway yeah Uh, you say you you quote richard uh palmer in this piece um that the tragic form generates theory of tragedy, right? Yeah, yeah. theory of tragedy, and it starts by saying an essential part of tragedy is unresolved and unresolvable emotional paradox. Right. Uh, you talk about that a little bit. Yeah, this would be that twinge of regret at the moment of the kill. When I was doing my PhD, the dissertation research, um, I ran across an old Victorian print. I think I might even describe it in that article or in other places where it shows a bird hunter. And he's got the double, you know, the, the double barrel shotgun just cracked open, a little wisp of smoke coming out of the breach. He's holding a bird. I believe it was a woodcock. And he's got his setter at his, at his knee. And he's looking at the bird kind of funny. And, it, and it's at the, you know, the moment of the kill. He's just harvested this, this bird. And the title of the print was The Moment of Regret. Hmm. And, again, it's that idea that, you know, hooray, I just, I did it. I got what I was out for. And at the same time, now I wish I hadn't done it, or I wish I could throw this bird back up in the sky and do instant replay, you know. And and again, it's not that the kill validates the hunt. It's just it's the hunt itself that's the the, the pursuit. It's the thrill of the chase, you know, that really old fashioned notion, the thrill of the chase. And uh, you know, people who run hounds, 
are probably the most articulate about this, whether you're hounding bears or raccoons or rabbits with beagles or, with, you know, hounds with mountain lions. You know, a good friend of mine was a Montana biologist years and years ago, and he, you know, wasn't himself a mountain lion hunter, but he had gone along on a bunch of mountain lion hunts. And he says, you know, the first time the houndsman will take a sport out and then the sport, they'll tree a mountain lion and the, and the guy from out of state will, you know, shoot a mountain lion so they can say he's done it and take the pelt and whatever. If the, if the, the, the hunter comes back the following year and, and they reenact the hunt, he says more often than not, they'll tree a, a mountain lion and the hunter will elect not to kill the mountain lion. And his friend of mine, Sean, he says, that's the closest thing I've ever seen to catch and release hunting. And <laughs> what he was describing was the fact that what's exciting about mountain lion hunting is listening to the damn hounds and following, you know, in a Jeep or on a horse or on foot even with GPS on all the collars and all of it. You know, that's the excitement. The, the, the shooting of a cat out of a tree is anticlimactic. You know, there's, there's just nothing to it. And, uh, and I think that that also captures something of this idea of the, you know, again, it's the pursuit, you know, mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's that that's what matters. Yeah. And the other th concept you touched on here is too, is the respect, right? When, when, when that moment of regret comes and we try to depict that as a hunting community, we're also trying to depict there's some respect there. Um, right. And how, and, and, and that you, you talk about this paper, but I know, you know, like there's a lot of anti-hunters and that scoff at the idea of the respect that you can have for an animal you just killed. Right. Right. You know, talk through that. Yeah. And I think that's again, partly people criticizing what they don't experience or don't understand, you know, and I think the idea of respect at the moment of the kill, it's why you go through such uh, efforts to, you know, um, clean the animal and get it quickly uh, on ice or cooled and, you know, packaged and frozen, you know, in, in part you're honoring the animal. Uh, and not just that individual animal, but the, you know, the species, you know, if you kill a deer, that, that individual deer you've just killed is kind of a totem for deer in general. And the game suppers and the celebration of, of the, the lives that have to be sacrificed to, to sustain our lives, uh, you know, that's part of that respect. That's part of that honor. And, and all of that's you know, highly ritualized. It's it's a type of cultural uh, celebration, but it's an another a very important part of hunting writ large. It's 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 part of the, the total package. Yeah, and I think you, you, when you start talking about death again, you get back to that kind of stuff, and then you have a respect for death um, and what it really means and what it looks like in its raw form. Because I think we've taken a lot of we've talked about this on this program. We've taken a lot of new hunters out. And the thing that right. struck me about, that's fairly consistent about this and that struck me the most, I guess that you could say struck me emotionally the most, is the idea that you might drop an animal on the spot. There may be some some muscle twitch, you know, a, a leg may jump. Uh, right. You know, we've all seen it as hunters. You know, you kind of know what's happening. This animal is just the last vestige of its life. It's, it's dead, but um, there's still a little bit of life left. I've seen a lot of new hunters struggle with that and and I, when i was a 12 year old boy i'm telling my dad shoot it again shoot it again shoot it again i've seen that from a lot of other uh, new hunters as I've, I've taken out folks here in the recent decade what do you think that is do you think that's just us you know being confronted with death and not wanting to see it not wanting to understand that there is a struggle there 
Yeah, that's partly it. But I think, you know, I may not answer your question very directly, but I'll answer a different question that you haven't asked, you know, about hunter recruitment and bringing young people into hunting and not hunters into hunting. You know, I think a lot of times we make the mistake or the hunting community does by, by pushing people to hunt big game right off the bat, you know, mm. hunt deer, you know, and you get these six year olds on YouTube hunting deer and, you know, 12 year old, you know, whoever girls, boys, and the older tradition of starting youth out with small game, whether it's rabbits or squirrels, um, you know, the emotional impact, what you're, 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 you're easing them into that emotional ambivalence at the moment of the kill if you start small or smaller, hmm. you know. And I think if you start with rabbits or you start with pheasants or you start with pen-raised quail or chucker and move your way up slowly to the point where, you know, you tackle big game down the line. And I think that would make it a lot easier, you know, if we allowed young hunters to go through that progression, uh, you know, so that they don't sort of overreact at that moment of death when the legs, you know, of the deer are kicking. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and, and so I don't think we do them any favors by, by sort of pushing that process. Lately, I've been telling you guys about land.com, the site that can help you find that little patch of ground to call your own where you can do all the hunting, fishing, and hanging out with family you want. Land can be a great investment. Getting your own piece of land is something that can both generate income over time and also generate a lot of memories for generations to come. It's an investment you get to use and enjoy and take care of while it works for you. And any good investor will tell you to start investing sooner than later. Well, they've got hundreds of thousands of rural listings from all across America. Land.com can help you find properties for hunting, fishing, a lake house, a hobby farm, or if you just want to start a rental business slash family compound as a way to better secure future generations. Land.com will also help connect you with the right agent that specializes in rural real estate. So enough dreaming about it. Land.com is the place to find and invest in your open space. Hey, here's a simple but very meaningful gift idea for your mom or grandparent who lives across the country. These are great, dude. These are really nice things to give to people. It's a digital picture frame from Aura. It's perfect for sharing pics of all the things they can't be there for, from family vacations to their grandkids' graduation. Let's say your mom comes out. You take a bunch of pictures of your mom with your kids or whatever. When she goes home, you can greet her at home with all those pictures you just took on the frame. And you can also keep her up to date by updating the frame from afar. It's all done online. It's a ton of fun. comes with unlimited storage and simple controls on the frame so you can upload as many photos as you want and mom can pick the perfect one. See why it was named the number one digital frame by Wirecutter, The Strategist, and Wired. Right now, you can save on the perfect gift that keeps on giving by visiting AuraFrames.com. That's A-U-R-A Frames.com. Make sure you use the promo code MEATEATER because for a limited time, you can get $20 off their best-selling frame with that code. The code being MEATEATER. AuraFrames.com, promo code MEATEATER. O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. At O'Reilly Auto Parts, they offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. Man, I'm always swinging through my uh, local O'Reilly Auto Parts to get stuff ranging from car parts and accessories to boat batteries. 
They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. And if you're a do-it-yourselfer and need a specialty tool to finish the job, stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts and ask about their loaner tool program. Simply pay a refundable deposit and borrow the right tool, then get your deposit back when it's returned. That way you don't have to go buy some you know, super expensive thing that you need like once every five years. Just borrow it and get your refund back. Need your windshield wipers replaced, brake light fixed, or quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit O'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater. How about yourself in your in your own life when you're, you know, we've we've talked about this in in the past in the podcast, how we're kind of comparing the experience of being an adult onset hunter, the way you're able to acknowledge some of the entanglements, whereas a 12-year-old, you're just, as this is how I came to it, just following my father. Right. Know, it was more about being with him and being around. And it develops into other things, but it's certainly there. And, and folks that are coming to it when they're 35 or 40 or, or older are able to appreciate the entanglements and walk when they're getting into it. How did you find that in your early experience? Well, you know, I don't know. Here's another case where I'm probably not going to answer that question, but a different one. And <laughs> I like it. it has to do, you know, we have different motivations with different kinds of hunting. So for grouse hunting, you know, I'm going to do everything the one true correct way. I always make a big joke of this. You know, it's with a double gun shotgun, a Parker, you know, built in 1910 over an English setter and only in the air and a 16 gauge. And, you know, so to me, the artistry of grouse hunting is partly what motivates me to get out in the woods, you know, versus deer hunting. I'm more about filling the freezer, you know, and the, the first deer that comes along 701 on opening day, if it's brown, it's down. And I'm not as interested in making deer hunting a kind of art form. Whereas I have other friends, you know, who, you know, they'll still hunt deer. They'll track them in the in the snow. They'll they'll you know, do the entire archery season, waiting for Moby Buck to come along, and and that's what defines them as hunters. Um, you know, duck hunting. You know, you you can carve your own decoys out of cork and build your own uh, duck calls and. Uh, shoot them on the wing or you can put a bunch of plastic flambeau deeks in the water and and sluice the first mallard that swims among your decoys you know (laughs) and and it's all good to me this is where we get back to the thing about hunters pointing their fingers at other hunters you know everybody you know most hunters are purist about one or two different kinds of hunting um but it's rare that somebody's a purist about absolutely all of them you know, when I'm yeah. grouse hunting, I'm usually by myself. When I'm goose hunting in January on my back in a cornfield, there's five or six guys with me. And partly what makes that fun is the group hunt part of it. Yeah. And I'm not a very social person. I don't generally like the group hunt. But goose hunting is the one uh, place where I just I, I love it. That's become kind of a passion for me. Yeah, and it's funny how those things go in your life, or that you're introduced to something, and to me, it's it's time and access or time and opportunity often right. are big factors in it. But you know, for me, I I love to be. I really love sitting in a tree stand, for, right, for twelve hours. I mean, you just don't. Right. There's just it's there's a meditation there, whether you accept it or not. That just doesn't happen. Right. You can walk around and ask a million people, "Have you ever sat in a tree all day?" And right. all, and all of them will probably tell you no. And so right. there's some 
But I also love being in a deer camp with a bunch of guys and, and sharing that experience. And I've increasingly been more drawn over the last couple of years to being with a lot of people while I'm hunting where right. before it was a more solitary thing. So I guess maybe hunting can be a reflection of where you're at in your life in that way. You know, what, I think, what do you value? I, I think that's really true. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's, like I said, it's fun to kind of com- compare and contrast with other people when they came into hunting, where they value it and, and how that's moved around. Right. I love that conversation because I think it provides all kinds of perspectives. Um, that we were talking about you one thing you we've brought up a bunch i don't know that we've explained it as well uh, you explain in your paper hunting is a serious art um, and you quote joyce carol oates she says she speaks of the awareness of life's tragic ambiguity that serious art provides and she makes an argument then about the sport of boxing should be considered a serious art um, right and you argue that that hunting and we've talked you mentioned that hunting is is a serious art can you kind of talk through that philosophical construct a little yeah bit? The, the joyce carol oates book by the way is just tremendous and if you don't know it you should go out and buy it today <laughs> it's i mean all that there's there's about four or five books i've read ortega but some of these other other, oh, it's, other it's things a, it's are a, great yeah, no, it's a great, great book. But, you know, when I was doing my dissertation work and thinking through this kind of theme, I look to other blood sports and other activities for sort of analogous ways of interpreting hunting. And the thing that really struck me was the, the Spanish bullfighting. And the bullfight literature, unlike the American hunting literature, or even the global, you know, whether it's German or, you know, people who thought about hunting, recreational sport hunting, the bullfight literature is the most self-aware collection of accounts of people interpreting the bullfight, not as a bullfight, not as killing a bull, not as waving a, you know, a cape around, but just how to interpret the larger sort of cultural phenomenon of the bullfight and how to assess its meaning. And to me, the the Spanish people in general have been very conscious of the sort of larger symbolism of the bullfight for hundreds of years. I mean, now, sadly, a lot of that is slipping away and, you know, they're, they're starting to ban the bullfight in more and more locations, but uh, at least for a long while there, there was an awareness of the bullfight as a type of, of artistic dance and again, all highly ritualized and all choreographed and every little move down to the pirouettes, they, they each have a, a unique meaning. And uh, an excellent book in English uh, language is, is Hemingway's Death in the Afternoon. Mm-hmm. Um, and to me, that was what was missing from the sort of American, you know, philosophy of hunting uh, literature. You know, I mentioned Jim Swan. There's a host of others, Ted Karasoti, David Peterson, all of them. And most of them don't interpret hunting as a cultural phenomenon. You know, they interpret it sort of as a biological act of harvesting food. And I think that just it leads to a set of blinders where you fail to sort of recognize hunting's true greatness at you know, provoking these larger themes and these larger thoughts and this deeper awareness about, about you know, he, the human place in nature. Um, you know, hunting can generate that. 
Yeah. It, it, it doesn't often, but it can. Yeah, if you allow it to, it definitely can. If you, right. if you see it for what it, for what it is, it right. can be. It definitely can. And not always, right. but and, and right. it will more often than not provide that. Yeah. Well, and that's, there's, there's difference. You know, you have reflective hunters and you have people who are unreflective hunters, but that's not unique to hunting. I mean, that's true in society in general. You have a lot of people who, they're just not reflective. They don't think in in sort of like philosophical ways and that's okay yeah i'm but sure you can that see that in boxing mean, too i mean there's probably a lot well, of boxers that think it's a sweet science and there's others that think well i have to do this to win right you know, less or, or people on the outside looking in who just like that's two idiots beating the snot out of each other <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> you know which misses basically the whole point uh, yeah you know, so do you feel like these things you know hunting is one of those things that needs to that has depth and if you want to understand it in the way that that you've articulated and understand it you have to spend time with it and you have to be around people that that really appreciate it in this way uh, much like bullfighting you know i wonder if if our society because how complex and difficult this is and there are so many other options out there that if we just like naturally move away from it um in a sense you know, I wrote that 350-page dissertation, and I handed it to my mother. And uh, she read it, and she hands it back, and she summarized it in 10 words. She's like, your argument's basically don't knock it until you've tried it. And I'm like, oh, yeah. <laughs> that, that was an instantly humbling moment because, you know, uh, why did I just spend, you know, X number of years and 350 pages on an argument? Um, but I don't think you absolutely have to hunt understand hunting i think it's possible for a non-hunter to grasp some of the essence of what hunting means to other people even if it's not their taste and i'll go back to that ortega quote um man does not hunt to kill he kills in order to have hunted during my dissertation and my wife god bless her didn't grow up hunting you know she's a suburban connecticut you know uh, urban uh, vegetarian for a long while, you know, she, the hunting was about as far from what she wanted to be thinking about as, as anything could be. And I would mention that Ortega quote to her and she's like, I don't get that. That doesn't make any sense. That's sort of stupid. And I, I thought about that for quite a while. And then it finally hit me. I had an analogy. I said, uh, when, you know, it's a little, it's a lot like shopping, right? And she likes to shop, you know, she grew up going to suburban Connecticut malls. I say, you know, you don't shop to buy, comma, you buy in order to have shopped. And all of a sudden, it's like you could see the little light bulb go off in, over her head. And she's like, yeah. That brings me exactly so much it like. brings me so much joy to hear you say that because I say that to yeah. my, my wife all the time. I'm like, this, this, it's the Black Friday thing's like opening day of deer season. It's exactly you just, you go to the mall, you know, and you, you just sort of browse and you come home with some trinket. It's like, okay, you know, that's, yeah. it validates what you did. And, yeah. And, and, and even though she's never hunted, you know, I think that moment was a, an eye opener for her. She finally kind of got, I think, at least, you know, that, that truth, that dynamic. Yeah. And, and having conducted the hunt, right. Or even shopping, if you really appreciate it, you'll, you can, you can do it better if you understand that, that that's right. what you're after. Um, right. And you can really appreciate those smaller things. And I've certainly over the last couple of years tried to hunt slower um, and be more deliberate and and treat it like a craft because because that's how I feel it is uh, for sure and and the conclusion of your paper you you said something that I think is the crux of this show kind of the genesis of why I felt like this is a worthy uh, worthy to have a podcast a weekly podcast 
Uh, you said the contemplation, the contemplation of death and hunting can be a tragic pleasure. Hunters and philosophers of the, of the hunt consistently agree about the necessity of the kill, but they often disagree about why. Why do we hunt and why is hunting a good thing? And I think that's something that we could tear down and build back up forever, but um, it's a great discussion. Yeah. Uh, do you think that do you think that we'll ever be able to to collectively understand that that each of us has a why, but there's also this macro why, this collective why that that we can all articulate together? I mean, I know that's a struggle for for all of us. And we started off in the beginning saying social media has kind of highlighted our differences and it makes it hard to understand why right. for everyone. Yeah, I think so. I, you know, I used to have this uh, conversation with people in the natural resources department, you know, for years and years, you know, the last 20 or 30 years, wildlife managers have been panicking about hunter recruitment. Oh, hunting, you know, the, the, the age of the hunters is going up. We're not recruiting Young hunters, the number of licenses sold every year is going down every year. And I used to sort of respond with hunting will never go completely out of fashion, mainly because it's such a compelling activity. And there's absolutely no other way that one can experience nature firsthand, you know, that sort of total immersion experience you know, when you're actively seeking your prey wandering around the woods, you're participating in a way that you're not when you're just hiking. And that, I th- and that, you know, that's, I don't know. There are people like Jim Swan or others who think, well, that's genetically encoded in our genes. I, I don't know if I buy that. But I just think that people will always find that experience um, valuable. Yeah. And so I don't I don't think hunting's ever going to go away. I really don't. Yeah, I I wonder about its future and where it'll go. We're certainly going to move. We're certainly moving further from it, I feel. Um but there's also the idea that as we become more urban and disconnected, there'll be this need for that medicine, this need of a return to these right. ideas and hunting will be there to kind of to, to catch that spasmatic. Well, we got to go back. We got to go back and understand the natural world. Right. So hunting will be well, there. Well, and you know, that. you are just like you mentioned, I mean, the whole locavore movement is very encouraging. Just the fact that you have people who care about their food, they care about what they put in their bodies, you know, to have organically grown deer meat or elk meat or goose meat, you know, is, is a lot different than, you know, the unknown stuff that you're buying at the store. You know, and a lot's been made recently about the so-called impossible burger and the veggie burger mm-hmm. and all. And, you know, people are failing to grasp this is a one of the worst developments food nutrition-wise, you know, you've got this totally 105% uber-processed piece of food with, you don't know what chemicals in it. People are thinking, oh, this is great for the planet. <laughs> nothing like, dies, yeah, yeah nothing let's, dies. Let's diagnose this five years from now when people start getting lumps in their lips or whatever. That's my, my, my favorite thing. If I, I was trying to have the Impossible Burger CEO on, and for some reason he didn't want to come on. <laughs> there you go. It was that weird would, that I, he denied our request, but I was going to ask, I was going to say, you know, no animals were killed by this burger, but right. we are going to die. <laughs> and, if, you know. and if you're going to create a burger and immediately sell it at Burger King, that's not very. That's not going to do you well on the marketing side because anything because yeah. Burger King's not necessarily worried about our health too much. So right. good luck, good luck with that. Yeah. But th- there's some false prophecy there, right? I mean, I think people are are trying to. Well, and the thing out. there that complicates it is this: uh, the fear factor of the the real, you know the link to climate change, and I think there's a lot of bad information and misunderstanding about climate change and you know how bad it will be and. 
and 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 so it's you know that's you're, you're sort of fighting fake news in a lot of ways. Yeah, for sure, and and you know the the reasons people step into that world, the the world of, of veganism and trying to you know disconnect from death and and stop suffering, all those things are right. impossible to achieve. And now you're now we've we have lab grown meat, we have you know all these things are gonna are, are gonna come up. And I've I've told people I don't know what you think about this, but I'll tell people that I wouldn't mind if there was an alternative to store-bought meat for everyone if it was plant-based that's okay but we need to realize that's going to be as hard as it is to to get rid of factory farming and mass right. animal consumption you know I, I i don't mind i'd much rather have a, a veggie based uh hamburger than eat a, a factory farmed uh version but i'm also not going to sit there and, and think it's a guilt-free sandwich right Right. Um, do you, you think about that often? Like, how do we get that through to people? How do we understand that, you know, even though certain movements, certain lifestyles might make you feel good, they're not necessarily uh, what they purport to be? Well, there again, you get back to the, you know, people not being very self-reflexive or, or, or self-aware about those kinds of things. I, a lot of people just don't want to, you know, have to do that kind of thinking. And that's fine. <laughs> and that's, that's, fine. A, that's true. That's true. You know. Yeah, and it is. We know we know the answer to this question. If you would ask somebody, is not killing something virtuous? Most people say, well, yeah. If you don't have to, it, it certainly is virtuous. You ask this question. I think it's it's an important one. Can killing be virtuous? You know, um, can you try to explain well, you know, the yeah. question and the answer there? There again, I think the hunter owns up to the death that he or she causes. You know, so at the moment you pull that trigger, you own it. And and you accept that responsibility, and and you can elect not to pull the trigger. So like this deer season, you know, I I not pulled the trigger more than I pulled the trigger, um, and that's a very different kind of moral ownership than the casual vegetarian who pats him or herself on the back and says, "Well, how virtuous I am! Look at me!" and is one hundred percent wholly unaware of the cost in animal life of basically factory vegetable farming you know the, 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 again the soy uh you know soybean analogy there uh, incredible cost of animal life you know and that that's just you know looking the other way yeah it is and, and it's hard to and we've talked about this a lot you know how it's very hard to convince someone who just doesn't want to think about it um, right and a right. lot of times and i wonder Going forward, is it the least complex idea that's going to win in popular society? You know, is it the, is it the fact that if you don't kill something, you don't have to kill something? You know, if you don't if you don't eat meat, something doesn't die. Um, that seems to be, you know, hunting is shrinking, veganism is growing. We've we've talked about that on this show a lot. That's not exactly apples to apples, but um, but that is happening. So I just wonder how we're gonna over time fight this idea that we have this complex enriching thing on one side and a very pretty easy to sensationalize and understand idea. And if you're not, if you don't eat this meat, something doesn't have to die. Right. Yeah. Do you think there's an end game there? Well, you know, I don't know. I just, uh, (laughs) I don't know how to answer that. Uh, (laughs) I, I do think there's an ebb and a flow, you know, I think, you know, in my own career as a college teacher, you know, 20 years ago, I had a lot of students very interested in animal rights. And right now I have basically zero students interested in animal rights. They've moved on to other sorts of themes. And so part of my 
background is also in history and looking at sort of things like this historically, I, I suspect the pendulum will swing back again at some point in the future toward uh, more consumptive uses of, of wildlife and, and recreational pursuits such as hunting. And, and uh, you know, so, I, you know, but there again, I'm more of an optimist in terms of my personality. You know, I think I'm a half full kind of guy and, and pessimists might, might not be so sanguine, I guess. Well, Jim, I really appreciate the, the thought process here. Um, I know there's, as I, as I started to, to look into your work and read some of your more current writings, there's a lot that you're into. Um, I guess I'll apologize for only focusing on this one paper and this one idea, but like I said, it, it's increasingly interesting to me. It's something I think we could obviously explore. Um, and there's so many uh, references and so many sources that you used in this paper that's probably going to take me a couple of weeks to try to pick up all these books and add them to my collection and, and read some of those. What What are some of the some of your favorite uh, books or resources out there that folks might be able to go to to just to learn a little bit more of these kind of philosophical In terms of hunting? Yeah, yeah. Of hunting. You know, I'm a big fan of sort of the earlier turn of the century, uh, mostly East Coast hunting writers. You know, this is another interesting thing to think about historically about American hunting. The center of gravity used to be New York and the publishing world in New York. And so you had people in New England like William Harden and Foster who wrote, you know, New England grouse shooting, for example. Um, that, over time and after World War II, the, the center of gravity has shifted to the West. And now you have sort of hunting media and social media dominated by largely, you know, sort of Western big game hunting. You know, Montana is the epicenter of all of, all of that. It's our fault. Um, yeah, well, you know, there's a there's good there's good things about that, but there's bad things about that, right? Because increasingly, you have the sort of vision of hunting being shaped by Montana big game hunting and elk hunting in particular, mm. and you know, deer hunting as it's practiced in places like Pennsylvania and Michigan, you know which has more license holders than there are Montana residents, you know, um, gets kind of short shrift or gets sort of shifted to the wayside. And, and to me, I think that's a little unfortunate. So, you know, I, I actually think the hunting community would benefit from a re-engagement with a more geographically diverse set of hunting writers. Yeah, for sure. I, we, we've tried very much here. We like at Mediator, especially and even on this show, we understand the leaning yeah, and and I've explained my aspirations to go west started when I was a little kid, right? Um, and I do, I am happy I'm here, but I do as an East Coast guy. We we're talking about my my upbringing where I was from in Maryland. You know, I do understand that. And I do know that most hunters uh, see this as a once in a lifetime or once every year thing. And there's a lot of hunting, a lot of things that take place, especially, I always think of Pennsylvania and I'm glad you brought that right. up, you know, as, as kind of this vestige of a different way of hunting deer drives and they do bear drives there still. And, exactly. Yeah. And these things are, these things, there's a, there's millions of hunters that take part in this and we cannot forget that with our, as we, you know, aspire to kill an elk or, you know, it, it's elk hunting is, is great, but there's just as much value in what's happening there. Or in the south, where yeah. they still hunt deer with hounds. I exactly. mean, you could go to South Carolina or Louisiana or Florida, you know. And, you know, when I used to do the Hunter Ed presentations, you know, I used to emphasize, look, as Hunter Ed, uh, Hunter Ed 
educators, you're not just training people to hunt in your state, but eventually they're going to get old enough to go hunt somewhere else as a non-resident, and the hunting practices are going to differ from what they are where you live. Yeah. And you can't sort of raise sort of ethical absolutists who say, well, the way we do it in Montana is the only way or, or the way we do it in Virginia is the only way. And, uh, you know, if you do bear baiting or, you know, bait deer in Michigan, that's evil. Um, you know, there's a, there's a topic for a whole nother podcast. <laughs> I got involved years ago with the bear baiting uh, ballot referendum up in the state of Maine that the uh, HSUS was pushing. And, you know, baiting is controversial. And there you had a classic case where you had hunters who didn't like baiting, pointing their fingers at people who baited and said, well, I don't like the way you hunt. Let's ban the way you hunt. And uh, I struggle. Know, I, I, I struggle with that. I've always struggled with that. I think baiting is the most fascinating conversation within right. within this within these kind of, you know, I guess you call them ethical arguments or arguments within hunting. I think it's the most fascinating because there's science that says if you bait for deer, it, you know, there's close contact, unnatural contact between the animals. There's spreads of spread of disease. There's also this idea that if you want to be an ethical hunter, have the closest, easiest kill to dispatch the animal, then you would bait for bears. Right. You would bait right. the bear. Um, and there's this idea that that's not sporting and what, what really is hunting. And so it kind of gets baiting for, it just gets at all of these cultural touch points in a way that is, is damn interesting to me. And I don't right. know if you'd ever figure it out other than, than your explanation. Um, well, and, and context matters, you know, even in ethics, there's this idea of contextual moral reasoning, you know, to be a, uh, to have an organic garden in the South, is a lot different than expecting somebody who lives above the Arctic Circle, you know, native Inuit to be an organic farmer because they're dealing with permafrost, you know. So, you know, you have to think contextually. The context in Texas is going to be different than the context in Maine. It's different than the context in California. Have you thought much about how social media has really contributed or <laughs> in negative or positive ways to, yeah, to you this know, topic? Social, yeah, social media is probably one of the worst things to happen to civilization ever. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> I love it. Quote me on that. Agreed. Um, uh, it favors sound bites and, you know, the Twitter 140 character sort of and, and instant responses where people just, they don't give it any thought at all, but they just snap with a knee-jerk reaction and a lot of that's really bad. Um, gone is the sort of the long form essay. You know, I, I mentioned those turn of the century writers. You know, they they would polish their writing for a week before they submitted it. You know, uh, even a podcast is better than Instagram type posts. Uh, I don't know. On the other hand, there is a type of uh, consciousness raising. You know, one of the things that happened with hunting about 20 years ago, there was this idea, just hide it. You know, don't go into the diner with your camo. Don't strap the deer to the roof of your car. And I don't think there's anything to be gained by driving hunting underground as if you're embarrassed by it. I think hunters need to just be themselves out in public and, 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 uh, and the public benefits, I think, from own awareness of how many damn people hunt. Yeah. And 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 that and not evil people. They're not bad people. They're your neighbors. They're your friends. That's you know. So yeah, I feel like that that idea came from my father's generation, right? Or maybe prior to that. I don't know that this idea that if we just don't highlight what's going on, no one will have anything to attack. Like wow, that's a 
super that's a reductive way to move through the world right that's really hard i I think social media has forced us into these conversations a lot of ways right Uh, right we got to have them now because a lot of people are there's you know 11 million hunters and and a good portion of them are sharing what they do online right um and it gives us a lot to criticize a lot to celebrate and and i think has kind of have shifted the way hunters move through the activity of, of going out to kill something. You know, there's right. different little touch points that you got to take a photo at the end. You got to do this, you got to do that. It's kind of changed the way that we do it. Um, in a lot of ways. So I like that you, <laughs> I like that you said that it's, it's the worst thing to ever have. Cause I'm, I can't, couldn't agree with that, uh, anymore. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> Maybe it'll uh, improve. Who knows? <laughs> ah, we'll fig- uh, We'll get better at it. I mean, I, we're probably better right. at it. I think as hunters, at least, we're better at it now than we were in its its infancy, which we're, it hadn't been around very long. I was in college when I first heard the word Twitter, um, and we laughed a lot <laughs> about it. So we got some time to go. Um, well, well, Jim, thanks so much for, for sure. checking in with us and, and taking the time. I I am not sure. I You know what? I'll, I'll say this. I was going to say I'm not sure how, how – interested people are in ethics but i will tell you this i've done some speaking engagements and some live events where uh, we talk about ethics and hunting and, and have very similar conversations to these and i've found all the audiences to be engaged uh often stay way longer than the allotted time and and people are just interested in this and it, um, even excited by it understanding that it, it will be a sometimes strenuous conversation sometimes will not there'll be no answer Sometimes it'll be deeply personal. Right, um, right. But it's a conversation I've been really heartened that people are willing to have and excited to have. So I appreciate you take, taking part in it. Sure thing. It was fun. All right. Thanks, Jim. All right. Thanks, Ben. I guess I grew up on an older road. That's it. That's all. Episode 97 is done. Thank you to Dr. Tentillo. Thank you to Anthony Licata, our editor-in-chief. Thanks to our community manager, his name is Joe Farinato. Um, the only thing I'll say is don't forget to go to firstlight.com slash tar hunt sweepstakes. Firstlight.com slash T-A-H-R-H-U-N-T sweepstakes to enter to go to New Zealand with me. Phil's not allowed to go. Why not? It's it's complicated. Okay. Well, I'm disappointed. Well, It was my idea to make... 2020 the best year at THC and now you're not even I'm not even gonna no uh, I'm listen, hurt Phil's hurt he'll get over it uh, we're gonna find some uh, some fun things in 2020 to do with Phil to Phil about Phil <laughs> to me <laughs> yeah. can't it's wait gonna be, <laughs> it's gonna be great I promise you're gonna love it um, next week another great show coming at you we, I've been churning on lab grown meat for a while so you go to TheMeatEater.com you can read an article that I wrote about meat Grown in a petri dish. It's crazy. It's sci-fi, and it's coming for us. So go read themeateater.com. There's a story there I wrote about lab-grown meat. Go over there and read it. That's your homework for next week because we're going to talk about it. It's going to be a good time here at THC. We'll see you then. Bye. too long because I can't go a week without doing wrong. Oh, without doing wrong.
Clean and protect your firearms with Riptide Armory. Riptide Armory's products are military and professionally formulated and approved, featuring a groundbreaking graphene-infused ceramic coating that is safe for all surfaces, providing unmatched protection for any firearm. Discover a new standard in gun maintenance. Order your advanced cleaning kits today at RiptideArmory.com. Riptide Armory, relentless performance for your firearms. I've been telling you guys about Land.com to help you find a place to call your own and do all the hunting and fishing and hanging with the family that you want. While owning your own piece of land is something that can generate memories, I can speak to this personally because my family, we own a couple small, beautiful little backcountry parcels it can also generate income in both the near and long term like starting a rental business slash family compound that can benefit both this and future generations check out the hundreds of thousands of rural listings from across america enough dreaming about it land.com is the place to find and invest in your open space 